Spirit to open our hearts and to open our minds and minds and to breathe new life into our soul, to bring us into your very presence, to hear your word preached to us. We ask that you would work in us, work in us as a church. Let us, let us show uh, the face of Christ for all the world to see. We ask, Lord, that you would help us today for the sake of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Good morning again, everyone. I want us to turn to the text that I read in the beginning of our service of the Gospel of John, chapter 15, where Jesus teaches about himself being the true vine and that his people, we, are the branches. And um, I taught extensively on this, oh goodness, how many years ago was it? Um, I'm not necessarily remembering the years because the last three or four years have sort of gone together as one, if you know what I mean. And um, so I don't know when it was, but I know that I did a four-year stint in the Gospel of John. <clears throat> and there's a lot of depth there. I'm not going to cover that. I'm going to use this text as a launching pad into some application this morning. And like what we've been doing over the last few months um, during the travel months is taking our time out of First Timothy, uh, which we'll finish up in the fall, uh, and going and dealing with some doctrinal things and some more application. I want to read a few verses, then I want to speak about some things, then I want to tell you what I'm trying to do. Jesus says, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. And my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you, speaking to the disciples at the time, are clean to them for us. Because of the word that I have spoken to you, abide in me. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches, and anyone, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Now I'm just going to stop there. Those five verses. And there's, something that, there's some things I want you to see and to have in your mind as we make application using proof text from other places in the scripture and but, but I just want you to have some clarity. First, I want you to see Jesus' confession and declaration that he is the true vine. He didn't just say, I'm a vine, or I'm the vine. Of course, this is a metaphor. We understand that. He's not a vine. He's not some weed growing out of the ground. But this imagery, this, this, the, the, the things that cause us to see the parallel here are important. For he says he is the true vine. What does that mean? That means there are other vines. There are other things to connect ourselves to. There are other identities by which we would stand. There are other things in life that we could make paramount in relation to our purpose, to our power, to our people. 
But yet if we want to live authentically, if we want to truly be who we really are, and we are really Christ, then we need to understand he is the true vine. We can connect to anything. A lot of us sometimes find our identity in our church, in our friendships, in our spousal relationships, in our children, in our jobs, in our career, in our accomplishments, in our health, in our physique, in our money. But that's, that's not it. And, and if you haven't seen the pattern over the last few months, go back and listen, starting with the first sermon I, I taught in Psalm 40, and begin to hear what I'm trying to teach us, church. We have lived in an extremely myopic way with, with, I would say, in a negative sense, blinders to the reality of the essence of our being as believers. And to the point that we have forgotten that the true vine is Jesus Christ and we have connected ourselves in culture, Christian culture, We've connected ourselves in denominationalism. We've connected ourselves in the context of certain historical theologies. We've made much to do about distinctions rather than Jesus. And there will always be the non-spiritually led, non-Christ-led fear. Oh, what abouts? The what abouts? The what ifs? The yeah buts? There's, there's a bag full of them. Everywhere you go, they're all on the bottom shelf. They're ready to be poured out at your feet. There's always going to be some hypothesis, some alternative, some hypothetical that could offer an outlier to what I'm saying. Those in and of themselves are also idols of our hearts and minds fueled by the fear of not connecting and finding our identity to the little weeds that we think are the vine of Christ. Like these theological groups, or these relationships, or these things. And ostracization is the tool of the church of America to manipulate behavior in such a way that everybody just becomes the same on the outside. But the scripture is clear that God sees the heart. You can't hide from him. There's nowhere in the Bible that the scripture says, oh, you know, God knew the heart of Johnny. But Johnny worked so hard, it didn't matter. It's not there. I mean, this is like a trailer for a very poor movie. The Religion of Johnny. A story. No tickets are going to sell. Yes, they would. If you're looking to take a nap. Or if you're a legalist, you'll buy a whole reel of tickets. Beloved, we can't act our way into Christian living. We can't pretend who we're not. It's a lie. And that's why so many people in the, quote, faith of our culture, in every iteration, no matter where we are, they all talk about freedom and joy and peace and, and resting and trusting and all these benefits, but there's, they're living in such a turmoil because the system that has been created that we call Christianity, of which I have been a part of and propagated the abuse of God's people from the pulpit, 
is not of Christ. Oh my gosh, abuse, oh man. What is it? Oh, it's not the schism that you're thinking, right? It's the subtlety. It's the emphasis. I don't know why God gave me me. I don't know why I am the way I am. I don't know why I speak the way I speak or, or, or have the, the personality that I have. But there's something odd about the fact that when I say things, people are like, yeah, that's probably true. I don't know why. But that's not true. What's not true? That, I'm, that it's probably true. It's not accurate. Just because I say it, it's not, it's not to be taken home to the bank. And what's crazy is that I say it often. Don't take my word for it. Read the scripture. But people don't go read the scripture. That's not what they do in the world. It's not what we're taught to do in the system of evangelicalism, the system of Christianity that's set up to keep people in bondage to an ideal or to a philosophy that's not from the Bible, but yet everybody says, from the Bible. Do you know that every, and this is a historical lesson, and American church history, I know, American history, westward expansion from colonization on to the wild, wild west as it relates to religion, is sort of like, I'm a nerd on those things, okay? used to teach it. I love it. I remember we were over at the other building years and years ago. I did a Tuesday night, American church history. It was so exciting. I love this stuff. So what I'm about to say is, is pretty authoritative. So don't take what I'd said before that true until after I say this. Then you can take it as true. I'll say it this way to be safe. Most every cult and Christian cult that exist in the world today started from Puritan ideals moving closer to the West Coast to get away from Puritan ideals. Every single cult that you could probably name started through westward, in, in the times of westward expansion. When the Constitution of the United States, for the first time ever, these people heard the words that they have a right to life and to freedom and to the pursuit of happiness and that Congress shall make no laws governing religion. And you have freedom of religion and furthermore, if you dig exegetically into the implications of this laws, you have freedom from religion. Really? So I can believe in anything? Yes, this is America. This is what God established as our laws. It's not Christocentric at all. There is not one Christian thing in the founding documents of this country. And I will go to my grave showing you that if you really want to dig through the authentic articles to the source documents. We got some lawyers in the room now. We can go to source documents. But yet we were taught otherwise, right? So the and I'm using that as an example. The very nature of all these iterations of faith and belief come from the Bible. Come from the very Bible that was brought over here by the separatists. By their very name, want to separate from those god-awful, you know, heathens across the pond. I mean, that's some deep religion to want to move across the ocean to an unknown land 
No internet, no electricity, <laughs> no grocery stores, on a boat. So they can escape the dogma of religion. But what they did is they brought it with them. And we're the product of that. We're the product of that. Jesus says, I'm the true vine. Not Protestantism. Not the Reformation. Don't get me started there. I can have us a horrible history lesson. Remember? History is written by the victors until now. Because now everybody can read. And now we have the internet. They can read everything you write the minute you write it. What does it mean to be connected to the true vine? I think simply put is that there's nothing we can do to separate ourselves from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. That's Paul's answer to this. Because the second thing that you need to understand is that Jesus is saying the Father is the vine dresser. So our connectivity to Christ is the Father's doing. I mean, I, we wake up every day and we go outside and there's some amazing, phenomenal thing that has taken place overnight. And there are two realities of this amazing thing. Is that the water that we gave our plants the day before is gone and the plants are either a little bit droopy or a little bit larger than they were the day before. And there are more weeds in the flower beds. And somebody, Robin or myself, has to get in there and dress it. I've never woke up and gone outside and the weeds have taken care of themselves. In the bush that's at the corner of my, for those of you who know my house, that you can't even see out of my study window. I'm like, how did that get so tall? Because the vine dresser hasn't been tending to it. But where did the branches all of a sudden discover the idea that they were the ones who pruned themselves? They were the ones who attached themselves. They were the ones who kept themselves. You see the point? This is gospel, y'all. This is the gospel. This is the good report of Christ. The Father has put you on Him. The Father will keep you connected to Him. And the Father will grow you from Him. There you go. There's a book. Write it. So we need to learn how to live the gospel. Well, that's why we're here every week. To live the gospel. But there are some people, and I'm going to give some negative things, then I'm going to get on with the, get on with the point. And with some negative things. There are some people who have made their ministry. Now, what, let's define ministry for a moment. Ministry is serving the needs of others. Okay? So you have the ministry of agriculture in some cultures, you know, rather than the department, it's the ministry because they serve needs. They really emphasize the idea of service, servanthood, servitude. So ministry, in the simplest form, is meeting a need. Meeting what need? Our own need? No, that's selfishness. That's not ministry. 
meeting other people's needs. So we are stewards, we have responsibility to oversee, to govern, and to do something for someone else. Now, of course, Merriam-Webster and the rest of them and everything else may define it differently. But in the context of the local church, that is a fairly decent elementary definition. But some people have made it their passion and their zeal and their movement in life to say that their ministry is to keep people connected to Jesus. Oddly enough, I said this some two years ago in my estimation of some of these people's motives and ignorance. I said to myself, these people have the divine eye of God. They know things that God hasn't revealed to me in this. And they've given, he's given them some type of insight as if they themselves are God. Much like the serpent tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, that they would be like God. You see? And they would know things. Well, people claim to know things. And it's not just the wackos that we see on TV from far off lands that are usually in towns about this size. It's everybody. And they think that they can connect you to the vine. Well, that's saying, I'm the Father. I'm going to keep you connected to Jesus through whatever means. Some people say that they can keep you connected to Jesus through obedience of the law. Nonsense. Can't happen. Why? Because you can't obey the law. You can obey it to your best of your ability. You can obey it even in a divine way to where you can't see your error and your disobedience to it. And in a judicial way, if we're the jury, we all say pretty obedient, right? Because we're in the same boat, disobedient. But they'll insist. Oh, no. Shame, shame, shame. Shame. It's the crown of abuse in the church. And many pastors wear it. And shame on us for wearing it. Some would say, ah, not obeying. Some would say, well, you're not proving. You know, Jesus said, whoever abides in me, he'll bear much fruit. What is this fruit? Glory, hallelujah, I don't have to go burn incense and pray at the altar for 60 years to figure this out. Because he answers it. This is my commandment, verse 12. That you love one another. Oh, that's easy. I have fondness toward my neighbor. I really like my friends. I just love pizza. Oh, pizza's not in there? Okay. See how silly we even use the term? Just love the summer. I just love them. I just love vacation. I just love you. I just love pizza. I just love my dog. I mean, did Jesus love us as we love our pizza? No, he explains it. Lay down our lives for our friends. Oh, there it is. While I'm sitting here in my third house with my four jets, let me go ahead and tell you right now, beloved, God has called you all to be poor. So give me all your money. I'll give God all your money. I'll pass it on up. <laughs> I can hear the Jefferson's theme in my mind right now. I don't know why. <laughs> I guess the terminology. Oh, gosh, that's weird. It's right there. I just want to sing it and get it out. I'm not going to do it. So we're loving by laying down, but we don't get to define what that looks like. 
how do we love that way? What in the world would we do that? Our joy would be full. My joy would be full in you. Isn't that what we're striving for? Our joy will be full if it's Christ's joy in us when we are resting, not wrestling. I used to believe this, y'all, that we should wrestle. Well, I, I've sparred a lot of my life. I've fought a lot of my life. I have punched a lot of my life. I have done very little wrestling. I don't like it. First time I did any floor work or groundwork in martial arts, the guy that I was sparring did not know that. I'd never been thrown to the ground before in my life. And I'm like, all right, let's get started. Next thing I know, stars knocked out. My head hit the ground. Had no idea. He slung me to the floor like I was a pretzel. And when I woke up, they're laughing. That's not funny. Brain damage. I don't do that. It was 12 seconds. Lights out. It's not fun to wrestle. We're not supposed to, like, you know, Israel wrestled with God. That's not the call of the Christian life. Ephesians 6 tells us that we are already in a battle. And Romans tells us we're more than conquerors in Christ. So it's about resting in the midst of the wrestling not wrestling in order to find the rest. It's not our fight. The Father's done it. Christ abides in us. We are here. We cannot escape Him. This is not an instruction on how to do. This is an instruction on who we are. You see this? And I've kept my Father's commandments and I abide in His love. And these things I have spoken to you that my joy, this is an implication of the speaking that makes us clean, Christ spoke over us. It is finished. Not guilty. You're not guilty. That's how John can say something so strange. If you say you have no sin, you're a liar. But because we're in Christ, you won't sin anymore. No, but God has said it. It's like being convicted of a murder that you did not do. And then the person you supposedly killed two years later shows back, I was just hiding. And then you kill them. You didn't kill them because you already did. Ain't that right? Sort of double jeopardy type stuff. And that's not a game show. You murdered them. No, I didn't. I already served time for that. When I didn't do it. So now I did do it and it's already paid for. That's grace. Except we didn't pay for it. Christ did. There's the implication of when we say we are not sinning. We're resting in the love of God Christ. And the moniker. I can't imagine the monikers that I will receive for that statement. It'll be something weird. But I don't care. Because what I care about is your joy. I want you to understand how to live a gospel life. And it's not about 
deepening your knowledge of theologies or making better distinctions or following the rules or, or becoming a better version or being more like Jesus in every, chance, in every sense that he is. We can't become God. You see how messed up we have done the culture? And what's crazy, if we're trying to stay tethered to Christ, the Father has plucked us off. Paul says as much to the churches of Galatia, doesn't he? If anyone thinks that they're going to get closer to righteousness or closer to Christ, then let them be accursed. The word there is not cursed like what we think. Let them be cut off. He's playing on words. Let them be cut off. They want to cut stuff off to be closed. Let them be cut off from Christ. Because you can't do stuff to get closer to Christ. Except rest where Christ is. Christ is in the bottom of the boat sleeping. Why are you up here acting like a fool? Oh, go down, go down. Just go to bed. What does Jesus say when they wake him up? Such little faith. Such little rest. Such little trust. You see me sleeping? I mean, I'm sure his attitude was sort of like that. He's like, be still. And Peter's like, I ain't moving. Oh, he just told the world to be still. He just told the sea to stop. Be still. He doesn't stand up there and go, oh, peace be. You know, like Merlin or something having to work his magic to get the sea to stop. He probably just said it that subtly, just be still. And the sea stopped. And if I was him, I'd have went back to bed. I'm like, now can we sleep? That's the Christian life. But there are things that we must be doing. We teach right teaching because the New Testament teaching is not for our theological fortitude and for our distinctions to be fortified. These are important things as we grow. But there are some who would suggest, unless your vocabulary, unless your distinctions, unless there are theological things in your mind that are able to be articulated in every language under the sun, but English is God's language. Um, it's the authorized language. Uh, and anyway, you know, we're going to get there. Unless your vocabulary is as distinct as theirs with all the implications therein, you have not been born again. You know what that is? Nonsense. I was searching for a word as I was getting to that. Nonsense is the safest thing to say. It's nonsense. And if anyone has a problem with me and my shepherding to say that I am letting go of or not being serious about distinctions and, and clarity in teaching, they don't know who I've been for the last 25 years. And I'll let the record speak for itself. But I'm not going to tell you that you're regenerated because God has given you some academic understanding of something. You're regenerated when the storm comes up and you look and Jesus is sleeping, you just lay down. And you're regenerated if the storm comes up and you look and you see Jesus and you freak out. You see what I mean? Because nothing you do proves that you are in Christ or not. Christ proves you are his because you will bear much fruit. And the standard fruit of assurance is continually resting in the gospel of grace. But what must I do? Go to sleep. 
simmer down now. You know, just simmer down now. And I'm not trying to trivialize. I'm trying to simplify it. And as a friend of mine has even said in the last week or so, sometimes oversimplification can be manipulative. So I don't want you to discard the, the gravity of authentic doctrine and true teaching. There is such a thing as false teaching. There is such a thing as a false presentation of Christ. There's no such thing as a false Christ. And there's no such thing as a false gospel. There's false presentations of those things. Like I can, and I have, I have had a $20 bill before that was counterfeit. And it felt funny and it sounded funny and it looked a little funny. Well, I ain't taking this. A dude tried to pass it off at the convenience store. I'm like, that ain't right. Give me another one. Sure enough. Next time I'm in there, it's on the wall, counterfeit. It looks right, but it's not right. But every New Testament community, every community, every person, every group of people, every city, every congregation that's addressed in the New Testament had, had several things in common. One of which is that everywhere there was the truth, there were people that came along on the tailwinds of the truth givers and brought some sense of error along after. Why? Because they thought they were right. So anytime there's someone trying to get you into a corner, pressing you to undo what God has done in your rest by an analyzing you or interrogating you, you can pretty much believe that they're not sent by the Spirit of God. So living the gospel is what we want to work on. Living the gospel. And beloved, it's not about having Bible studies every day. It's not about doing all this stuff, learning induction and learning all these different things. We ought to be reading the Word of God every day. As much as we can. More than reading, we ought to meditate. We ought to get into the habit of focusing on what it is that the scripture teaches us to do. What it is the scripture is telling us to do. Living the gospel in a biblical context refers to, in my opinion, the practical application of the teachings and principles found in the scripture. Specifically, the New Testament. The word good news, gospel, it centers around the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And all the teachings about God's kingdom and him as the way to salvation. Living the gospel is not about intellectual knowledge, but it is about embodying, listen to me, and I'm using these words on purpose now, it is about embodying embodying the transformative message of Christ in our life every single day. Christ is, therefore I will. The gospel says, therefore I can. God's love has, therefore I am. There is no such doctrine in the Bible that rests in and on itself as knowledge enough that does not call for us and command for us to do something with it. The good news is, whether we do something or we don't do something is not our assurance. Our assurance is the promise of God alone, not what we've done with or how we apprehend that promise. And if God the Spirit grants you to rest in what I'm saying, hallelujah. That's regeneration. That's repentance. That's repentance. You're resting. Not wrestling. 
So what does it look like? Faith and repentance, what I just said. Let me, let me give you 10 ways that we should embody this. Faith and repentance. We trust in the promise of the true vine. Jesus is making a promise here. The Father. He says that over in John 6, right? You can't come to me because the Father has not given you to me. All that the Father gives me, come to me. So this is the metaphor now of that picture of salvation being done by the Father, accomplished by the Son, and held together in the context of the Spirit, whom Jesus will send, as we heard at the beginning of our service. I did not choose you, but... I mean, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit. Now, what is he talking about? To the disciples, he's talking about their love for one another and the love that they will teach others to have for one another. But most importantly, he's teaching about how that that message alone, no wrestling, no persuasion, no, no coercion rather, but just the dynamic work of the divine power of God and the Spirit through the simple message of Christ crucified and resurrected. God, as he wishes, when he wishes, at whatever occasion he wishes, without any means that he wishes, can cause his people to be born unto life through repentance, which is faith, rest in the finished work of Christ. Now, some people will argue, well, what if the Christ that you were presented, what? is not the true Christ, then it was not a true message of Christ. I mean, why do we have to go there? Uh, and I'm going to start asking people, well, oh, are you teaching a false Christ? Is that your problem? You're afraid? I'm just, the hypotheticals have become a wall. We're living in a very tiny, tiny circle with extremely high walls and we're not living productive fruitful lives we're not able to see we're so scared we're so fearful of anything that doesn't look like what we have designed as our own gospel repentance and faith living the gospel begins with faith in jesus christ as our savior and we will always be in a state of being divinely taught by the lord there is no prescription in the gospel accounts and even the letters you can't get everything in every letter you know that right you can't get every essential doctrine of christ in in one single letter of the new testament you have to look at all of them but you can get the message of christ in full and everything that needs to be preached perfectly to a specific people group out of four different ways through matthew mark luke and john and I prefer to use John almost 80% of the time when I'm sharing the gospel. Because it fits our narrative. It fits our culture. It fits our world. So we live the gospel by faith. And whether we do it right or we do it wrong, or we live right or we live wrong, we love rightly or we love wrongly, we're never going to perfect it. It's okay. We are perfected in Christ. We are sanctified in Christ once and for all. There's nothing more necessary for us to do, and there wasn't anything for us to do anyway. God brought us to Christ. God gave us a new mind, and that mind and its newness rests. That's faith. That faith is evidence of repentance. Repentance is not about getting the dirty out. I had a question come up this weekend. Somebody said, in my accountability group at my church, um, 
the men have decided to give each other our tax return so that we can be accountable for how we spend God's resources. And then bank account stuff. And I'm going, <laughs> you're crazy. That's crazy. I'm just going to say it. That's insanity. Grocery list next. Text messages. If, if the good news is watch yourself, I don't want it. If the good news is beware, then the disciples are liars. Just another way of control. And there's a lot of control, and I'm going to be preaching a message in a couple of weeks on how we've seen control destroy the church historically in my lifetime. I don't know about yours. The second aspect of living the gospel outside of faith is then doing the things that the scripture teaches us to do. The first one being love and compassion. If we don't get love and compassion, we shouldn't deal with anything else. I'm going to say that again. If we don't perfect love and compassion, we shouldn't be doing anything else. Anything. We shouldn't have one conversation about justification and its theological and judicial implications until we love everybody perfectly. Now, we're not going to, so we better learn to have those conversations in the midst of all that, you see. But that's just how I am. I'm not going to do this until I make this perfect, and then I never get to this. And I never finish this. <laughs> so I never do anything. And by God's mercy, I'm learning to not be that way. Or I would never have but one shoe on. Because this left shoe is still not tied correctly. It doesn't feel right. Central to the gospel is the commandment to love God with everything we are, which means the only way we do that is to love others as we love ourselves. It includes self-love. And more people hate that word. That's all fuzzy. It's not fuzzy. You know how hard it is to love you? Of course you do, because you don't love you. Living the gospel involves showing compassion and kindness and selflessness with friends and strangers and lovers and enemies. Seeking and framing to see the good and not to steal away from a lyric, but love is not in spite, it's regardless. We are to love regardless. And love is a decisive act of the will how can I do that? Because God decisively, actively willed to love me in Christ. Regardless. God didn't love me in spite of me. He loved me regardless. See how little words make a big difference? And I'll unpack that biblically as time moves on. Forgiveness and reconciliation. Christians are called to forgive as they've been forgiven. And some infractions are never forgotten. But we can learn to love regardless. And there are outliers. There are extreme things. And we all have our limits. And we aren't to be held to the standard of remaining in 
situations where we're destroyed or abused. This is not being persecuted for Christ's name when we inflict others to harm because of a social structure that we call Christian living. But we should be seeking reconciliation. We, could, we should be seeking restoration between others. Restoring broken relationships. Restoring things whenever possible. I mean, that's a direct commandment, right? You know, I don't have to go to Romans 14, 15, 16. I don't have to show you that. You know that. That's what Jesus means, love one another. The fourth thing is to serve. We ought to be giving, laying down our lives, as Christ talks about. Laying down our lives. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loves the church. You know what that means? He's not the boss of his wife. Did you know that? Husbands are not the boss of their wives. Yep, a bunch of eyes just fell on the floor. We don't have flies in here. I'll go in. There is no such thing as dominance or authority over another human being in the economy of grace. But culture has taught us all sorts of crap about that. And I have spent my entire life trying to figure out how it works and making excuses. Well, that's not the way we are. That's not the way they are. But, but the system is set up that way to marginalize and to control. servanthood. Jesus Christ came down here and embodied himself as a creature and became sin. When he could have easily just went, bow down! I mean, we'd all bowed. Husbands, love your wives as, wives as Christ loved the church. As your own body. <laughs> I pray to God by the time I die, I get that. Generosity, stewardship. The gospel teaches us to be generous with our resources, with our time, with our talents. And emphasizes the responsibility of handling things judicially and prudently that don't belong to us. Responsibly. The sixth thing is that we have to have a life of integrity and honesty. And I want to just go ahead and caveat. Let's just cut this caveat right out here. This keeps it real. Speaking the truth in love is not getting in the face of anyone about anything ever in that way. Speaking the truth of love is minding your own business and speaking when you have a relationship that warrants it. As one who is equally guilty as the person you're speaking of, that you may help guide them to the resting place of rejoicing not cleaning their lives up. Folks, that is so hard. Why? Because we love the tabloid blood that runs through our American veins. And when we can call somebody out on something, for some strange reason, we get high. It's like dopamine on crack. Is that even cooth to say? It's like, yeah! I got him! Put down them novels and quit reading that witchcraft. Pick up the word of God, only the KJV. But guess what? That KJV idolatry is worse than the witchcraft. Because you're saying God 
wrote English. And in the end of the day, it don't matter. If you want to read the KJV, read it. I'll read it. Now that I got a Bible on my phone, I can pull up any version you want. You want the redneck version? I guarantee you there's one. And all my 1611 friends, their heads just exploded when I said that. Be preaching some funerals this week. <laughs> Integrity, honesty. Living with integrity, living with authenticity, living with honesty, speaking the truth in love requires gentleness, requires love, requires extreme compassion, requires the desire for reconciliation. Because, you know, we should never speak the truth in love if it doesn't directly relate to reconciling us to someone else. Or as someone needs us, offering our time and prayers to help reconcile with others. We're called to live faithful and to persevere. Number seven, Christians are called to remain steadfast in their faith. How are we going to be steadfast? What's that mean? That means we're going to suffer. We're going to walk out. I mean, I went outside yesterday and the basketball goal's blown over and the tables are blown over. And I mean, there's new furniture in my yard from someone else's yard. I don't know where it came from. Because we had a storm the other night, and it just blew, and it blew, and it blew, and it blew. It was not steadfast. How do I know? Because it's gone, or it's moved. We don't, we, don't, we don't get to be steadfast until we're blown against, until we're pressed, until we have pressure. Being steadfast is not floating along in an inner tube with a 70-degree day and with a beautiful sky. It's as we're in that place going, this is great. What is that? And it's a class six rapid. And a thunderstorm on top of it. I'm going to die. Just hold on. I can't. That's all right. The tube's got you. The branch doesn't hold on to the vine. The vine holds it. The Father keeps it. We're going to be called to be steadfast. And in that, the number eight, we're going to be called to humility and meekness, lowliness. It just stomps out all arrogance. It stomps out all boasting. But yet... Humble brags are the greatest arrogance of the church. If it weren't for the grace of God, there go I, I'd be like you. That's arrogance. That's not humility. <laughs> it's not. And the crazy thing is, is Jesus says, you are my friends. Right? Verse 14 of John 15, you are my friends. It's conditional. If you love others. So we love God when we love, and we love Christ, and we're his friends when we love. You got a friend? You got a spouse? You got a significant other? And y'all are friends? You're friendly? When what? When we're loving one another. When we get to fighting, we're not friends anymore. Let's just be honest. The way relationships stick is when we decide we want to keep that friendship. And work toward it. I mean, that's Christian living. And the world gets it better than some church members, some congregationalists, certain denominations. And honest to God, better than the Christian culture of this world who is known for their hatred and separation. And the irony behind that is the ninth thing that, that I believe is imperative about living the gospel 
is to avoid hypocrisy. <laughs> How dare we be objects of divine love and then be adamant on being hateful toward other people who don't live according to our standard? Well, that's not going to associate with those people. You know what? There's only one context in the context of the church where someone cannot be associated with, and that's when that person refuses to put down destructive things in their life which are destroying relationships. And then the church has to go, it's going to give you some time, arm's length. Why? So that they'll come back and go, okay, I want to be close, I want to be friends again. But we've abused that in the culture. And then we turn around and we judge others and we make judgments of others and then we lay it up. I mean, oh my goodness, you want a good teaching ministry? Just bang the pulpit and talk about all the wicked things that are going on in the world but never turn them inwardly. And you'll have, you'll have a full house and a full bank account. You'll have two or three full houses. And you'll call it church planning and say, look what the Lord is doing. Standing against wickedness. The Lord stood against wickedness when he hung Christ on the cross. And then he gave the credit of Christ's righteous life and death to us. <laughs> and then in all of these things, the tenth thing that, I, that, I'll, that I'll share this morning, the last thing is that in all of that, we're sharing the gospel. And sharing the gospel is sharing the testimony of the life that God has promised us in Christ resting in Him, and then being lived out authentically together as His people. A gospel testimony isn't, I used to be that, now I'm this. You ever heard those? I remember in the days of high school and college ministry, you know, we'd have these large camps, and there'd be this guy, real cool, real tough, you know, pecks out to his cheeks, and just rough. I was in prison 17 months, and Jesus found me in the toilet. I looked in the toilet and I just knew Jesus. And I made $40 million and I had Lamborghinis and I had 65 girlfriends in 20 minutes. And, uh, you know, and it was awesome and awful at the same time. But then I saw Jesus and now I'm free. And all these kids would get back in the breakout sessions and go, so you mean to tell me? I can have all that and then get Jesus later. <laughs> I'm serious. It's not a testimony. It's not a testimony. It's a testimony, but it's not a gospel testimony. It's like it's not a gospel testimony for us to say, well, you know, I was, I was lost, and then I said these magic words, and ta-da, I was saved. That's not a testimony. It's not a testimony to say, hey, this... And we all have these stories, but a testimony is that God gave his son and his son satisfied his wrath for me. It's simple, divine. God found me. God called me. And yes, God changed me. You see? But there are a lot of things that can change you. And God's word doesn't promise that he's always going to change all of us with everything. There are some things that we will struggle with to the very last breath we breathe. 
There are temptations that our mind will never let go. And it's not a promise that we'll escape them in this life. We will not be separated from the vine. We will not be separated from the vine. When we experience God's grace, there is a transformation of the heart. And then our relationship with God in all three persons begins through his word and with his people. And we live in response to his sovereign grace, faithfully living, ministering to others, worshiping, loving, adoring. And being empowered by the Holy Spirit. Because of what God has done. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask... The Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. And I'll unpack some of that more next week. Beloved, this is a promise. And every one of us are sitting in a position right now where two things are true. At least two things. One of these two things could be true. We're sitting here today going, I am horrible. I cannot live up to this, and I don't know what I'm going to do. That is not the point of the promise. The second option is, I am so glad that I do not have to live up to this because Christ lived it for me. So I will rest in his word that he spoke to me that I am being attached to him and pruned in this very moment by his word that has been spoken to me that I may become more focused and sensitive and intimate with Christ as I become more focused and sensitive and intimate with those around me starting with myself. Now which one do you want? then rest there. That's God's gift to you. And when you take this table, remember that the wrestling, that the struggle, that the trial, that the damning was Christ to bear in the cup and in the bread and the body with his blood. It's not ours to bear. The world will hate us, as he says in the very next verse. But he was hated. And if we are his and he is ours, and we are in him, and he is in us. We will suffer in the same way, but we will also be able to have the peace that he also had in the midst of it. That's my hope for you. It's not my hope for me. It's not hope for everybody, all of us who aren't even here today. And we would find that, that we would rest in that, and that we would come every week to be refueled and recharged and re-encouraged and re-exhorted to live it out. Let's pray and then take the table. Father, we are so glad to be able to come 
together as your people. Lord, I am not perfect, never can I be, but I am perfect before you because of Christ's perfection credited to me. That does not make what I do always right. It does not make what I say always true. So, Lord, test me that I may correct things that would lead people out of the truth. For it is a great possibility that that could happen. If we don't test it. But Father, I do know that the words that you have given us, that the words that Christ has said, we do not get to decide what they mean, for they say what they mean. And you have given clarity on these things. Lord, give us a life of fulfilled living together in Christ. And help us to break away from all the burdens, as John would teach us, that the burden of the command that you give is not heavy. Because your love is perfect. So help us to quit living in a place of burden and fear. Fear of each other. Fear of all sorts of things that we may live intimately. Openly and honestly with each other. As you have revealed your glory in that way through Christ your son. And we thank you for him and what he has accomplished for us. And that he is alive today interceding through his body and through his blood because it is finished. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please come.